Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and if you would, also put a finger in Ephesians 6, please. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6. We're moving our way through the book of Colossians, and this week we are in verses 20 and 21. So we're going to read that, then we're going to flip over to the parallel account in Ephesians, a slightly expanded account of the same ideas, and read that, and then we'll get into the study. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And then in verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. And now, if you would, please flip over to Ephesians 6. And there we read a slightly expanded version, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is before us this morning. And uh, it's going to speak directly to each one of us. We are either parents or have had parents. We either are the children of somebody or have had children. This relates to every one of us. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would communicate to our hearts very clearly how we ought to respond to the word of God this morning. That yes, Lord, you would instruct us, but you would also train us. Even, Lord, we would give you permission to rebuke us this morning in areas where we need to be rebuked. You would train us for righteousness. And we just cast down every false ideology and philosophy of the world. With regards to parenting, we know there are so many, and so many that would be contrary to your word, but your word is truth. Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Where else would we go? And so speak to us this morning concerning these things. And if there be any uh, ideas in us that have taken a foothold that are just not biblical, show us that, Lord, and correct our thought process there. And also, Lord, we ask for grace this morning because all of us have failed in these things. Many of us have been bad kids and many of us are not the greatest parents. Thank you that you are our perfect Heavenly Father. And we just ask, Father, that you would Have grace on your children this morning while you instruct us. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's amazing to me, as a pastor, you do a lot of counseling. You know what I mean? A lot of people sit down and and say, here's my problem, help me. And, And the job of the pastor is to direct them to Jesus Christ and to the Word of Christ. You know what I mean? That's what we're to do. We're supposed to put their hands in the hands of Jesus and and open up the Word before them and connect them in relationship with the Lord and let the Lord do a work. But it's amazing to me how often as I sit down with the adults and they tell me their problems, that their problems have to do with some failure on the part of their parents some abuse that they experience at the hand of their parents, or, or some sort of neglect. And here they are, 30, 40, 50 years and older, 
still dealing with the outfall of the failure of their parents. It's amazing to me also how many parents sit down with me and say, pray for my child. My child has gone off in this direction and they're experiencing this and that and the other. And and, and this is a difficult area, but God has ordained that the family would be a vehicle for blessing. And that through the family, through parents and childs and husbands and wives, people would experience God's plan and His precepts and His power and His blessings and His workings. That's a unit that God ordained primarily for humanity to experience His blessings is through the family unit. But then when we look to the Bible, we see that it says surprisingly little about parenting. It has some things to say, to be sure, but not as much as we would like, really. You know, we would like a full, thorough, 97-point outline, just bam, 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 exactly what to do at every moment of the day. But the Bible doesn't approach life in that way. The Bible approaches life in a very different manner. The Bible approaches life by saying things like, The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Bible approaches life by having Jesus say such things as seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. The Bible approaches life's problems and quandaries by saying things like you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, says the Lord. And you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. That is the way that the Bible approaches life is by putting Jesus Christ on the throne of our lives and everything else falls in line after that. That is the thrust of the Bible. That is to be the pursuit and the passion of our lives is simply enthroning Jesus, making Him the primary relationship. And then it's amazing how when we do that, He begins to set our other relationships in order as we know Him and begin to move in His precepts and in His power, which is the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the thrust of the Bible is knowing Christ and walking in the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of life is details. And so the Bible approaches it in that way. And so we should too in life. And the primary thing should be knowing Christ and walking in the Spirit. But there are a few things the Bible has to say about parenting. First, we're going to talk about kids for just a moment. In verse 20, it says of Colossians 3, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Just a few random thoughts, and I realized in the last uh, service that I didn't organize these very well, so forgive me. But a a few thoughts about kids and and parents, and really I've left it to our children's ministry to address this verse. I asked the children's ministry to be talking to our kids today about obeying their parents, amen? So it should be a wonderful Sunday for you all when you go home. And I asked the junior high ministry today to talk to our junior hires about obeying their parents. But I'll say a few things to you and spend most of our time on the idea of parenting. The word used for children here in Colossians 3.20 in the Greek is tatekna. And it denotes the idea of children who are still dependent upon their parents for their basic needs. They've not yet reached the age of adulthood, whatever that might be in a various culture or context, nor have they married. So they're still dependent upon their parents. And what these children are supposed to do is obey their parents. And that word obey there in the Greek, hupakuete in the Greek, it's a hard word to pronounce, it combines the ideas of both listening and submitting. 
Children are to listen to their parents and to submit their parents. And and even beyond that, uh, the tense of the verb in the Greek denotes that they're to do it continually and repeatedly. Amen? Uh, Robert Gromacki in his commentary says it this way, A child who obeys is one who puts himself constantly under the authority of his parents, listens to the parental directives, and does as he is told without rebellion or complaint. That sounds great to all of us who are parents, and of course we all did that as kids. And the reason that kids are to do that is for the Lord. It said that in both of our texts. It's well-pleasing to the Lord, and they're to do it for the Lord. Just like last week when we talked about wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord or as an act of worship to the Lord. It goes beyond merely human relationships. That's the context in which these precepts are set. But the precepts have at their core the person of Jesus Christ. And the child who knows the Lord is to obey his parents out of a reverence for the Lord. And the child is to obey his parents in all things, in everything. Now obviously that doesn't apply if the parents would want their kids to sin. You know what I mean. Times are tough and you say, look, I want you to go rob the gas station, come home, put some food on the table. You don't need to obey your parents in that. Same thing with marriage. You know, the wives are submit to the husbands, but not if the husbands are asking the wives to sin. Our allegiance is first to the Lord and the human uh, relationships are within that context. But if parents themselves are submitted to the Lord, then that's not going to be a problem. They're not going to be asking their children to sin, generally speaking. Now you're saying, oh, this is great, Britt, I I love this message. You're talking about my kids, how they should obey, how they should listen, they should be obedient, they should worship the Lord in their obedience. That is great. Tell me more. It is great. But unfortunately, our kids are very much like you and I. That is to say, they don't listen very well, and they don't behave all that often. They're just like you and I. But one thing that we've got to take note of is this. Obedience for the children has got to be toward both parents. And now here's where the responsibility of the parents come in. Obedience has got to be to both parents, but that means that the parents have to be walking in agreement on their boundaries and standards and rules for their kids. The parents must agree upon those things. If the parents are sending contradictory messages or commands, what they do effectively is make it impossible for the child to be obedient to the Lord in this area. If they're sending conflicting messages, they make it impossible for that child to obey the Lord in that area. And that's a grievous sin. And so mom and dad, you had better get yourselves together. Don't be sending conflicting messages. Go in your bedroom and work it out. Come to an agreement and send a consistent message to your children and present a united front to them. In that way, you will help them to obey the Lord. And we need to help them. We need to teach them to obey. Obedience is something that's learned. Nobody comes out of the womb going, okay, I want to obey everybody at all times. Nobody does that. In fact, we come out of the womb saying, I want to sin a whole lot. The Bible declares that, that we are even conceived in iniquity. And so obedience is something that is learned. And if we don't teach our, obedient, our children obedience now, they'll grow up to be defiant. Defiant of uh, teachers, defiant of police, of employers, and anyone else in authority. And really, when we look at our society and we see a breakdown of authority, the home is generally to blame. Because the children of a certain generation didn't learn obedience from their parents. 
And in that is this thought. Warren Wiersbe says this. For the most part, children do not create problems. They reveal them. You see a kid that's just a nut job, you know what I mean? It really, in all humility, speaks of the home. Something has gone awry in the home. Something has gone amiss in the parenting of that child. Kids don't necessarily always create problems, but they always reveal the problems that are there. And I believe this to be true, that parents who cannot correctly discipline their children, it's usually because they cannot discipline themselves. They're unruly in their own lives. They don't practice spiritual disciplines or any other sort of meaningful discipline, and so they're unable to discipline their children. It's got to be that parents are under authority themselves to exercise correct authority over their children. Parents have got to be under the authority of the Lord. They've got to be submitted to the Lord and submitted one to another. Subject one to another, as the book of Colossians says. And only then, when the parents are submitted and have a submissive attitude, when they're walking in obedience and they are under authority, then they can exercise proper authority over children. So once again, we see the principle that in order for our horizontal relationships to work out correctly, we need to give attention to the primary vertical relationship. We've got to get right with the Lord first if we ever want to do good in the horizontal relationships. But let's move on to the concept of parenting a little more in depth. It says in verse 21 of Colossians 3, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Now the word for fathers there in Greek generally denotes fathers, but it is translated in certain contexts as parents. We see that in Hebrews 11.23. So I believe it's valid this morning to address our remarks to both parents, to mom and dad. And what the scripture generally reveals for parents is this, that we are to make it as easy as possible for our children to obey. We're to make it as easy as possible. Somewhat counterintuitive, you know, to the wicked heart of man. We like to see people jump through hoops for us and really perform. But that's not the biblical ideal. We're to make it as easy as possible for our children to obey us. That's denoted in the fact that it says, uh, parents do not exasperate your children. Or in Ephesians 6.4, do not provoke them to anger. And these are the commands given to every parent. Now, to exasperate means to irritate intensely. To irritate intensely. Don't irritate your children intensely. Exas- or, uh, provoke, excuse me, means to stimulate or give rise to a reaction or emotion, typically a strong or unwelcome one in somebody. So literally it could say this, do not provoke your children to anger, thereby causing them to seethe with resentment and irritation. You've seen it before. You've seen when kids seethe with resentment and irritation against their parents. I've seen 40-year-olds sit in my office as their pastor counseling with them. I have seen them seethe with resentment and irritation against their parents many years later. And it's the command of the Lord to parents is do not provoke them to anger, do not exasperate. Now, what does provocation look like? What does exasperation look like? Well, it makes unreasonable demands on a child. It humiliates a child. It manifests no loving understanding of a child's unique personality. It's marked by constant nagging. It irritates them by perpetual fault-finding. 
And what happens then is that there develops a, a spirit of strife in this child. Strife meaning angry or bitter conflict. And that escalates. And then there's strife between the parent and the child. And the child grows up in that atmosphere. And now that child goes on to adulthood with an attitude of strife toward other people. That they always find themselves in bitter and angry conflict with others. And for that reason, we are warned here in the scriptures. We are forbidden to provoke our children to anger or exasperate them. The way that it's said here in Colossians 3.21 in the New American Standard is don't do it lest they lose hearts. Lest they lose heart. The King James says lest they become discouraged. The New Living Translation says lest they become discouraged and quit trying. To discourage means to cause someone to lose confidence or enthusiasm. We've all seen a child that has lost heart. We've all seen children that have been discouraged and they just slouch in their shoulders and they're just kind of sunken in in their eyes and they're always looking down and, and they never really look up and look you in the eyes. And I'm not talking about a child who is shy. I'm talking about a child who's been crushed in his spirit wrongly by an adult. I'm talking about a child who has lost heart, who has become discouraged and who has quit trying. Kent Homer says a discouraged child has no spirit. He is sullen and listless and a discouraged disposition. What is ultimately heartbreaking is that a child whose spirit has been broken in this way loses the desire to become who God has ordained him to be. They lose the desire to become the beautiful man or woman that God has ordained them to be. And what is an even more immediate danger is this. When children are crushed at home, when they're discouraged at home, they become easy prey for Satan outside the home. Satan hates our kids. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when we crush our children in the home, when we exasperate them, when we provoke them to anger and cause them to become downfall and in this way, we send them out into the world as easy prey for the enemy who's very quick to come alongside and whisper lies into their ears. To tell them the things that they never heard at home and to lead them down a wrong path. The world is all too willing to befriend our children when we neglect our children. So it's very important, parents, that we heed this command not to exasperate our kids or to provoke them to anger. Now, I, I wrote down a few ways that I found we exasperate our children or provoke them to anger Frequently, the first way that we need to be mindful of is constant criticism. Constant criticism. It's a horrible thing in the ears and in the heart of a child. Heim Gannat says this, A child learns what he lives. If he lives with criticism, he does not learn responsibility. He learns to condemn himself and to find fault with others. He learns to doubt his own judgment, to disparage his own ability, and to distrust the intentions of others. And above all, he learns to live with continual expectation of impending doom. That's what a child learns when he is constantly criticized by the person who in the whole world is to be kindest to him, who in the whole world is to have the best understanding, who in the whole world is to be the most graceful with him. When that child is constantly receiving criticism, he learns those things. And what happens is that child loses hearts. 
Why are parents critical? Why? Well, sadly enough, for some of them, it may be because that's all they know. Their parents were critical of them. And that's what they learn. In their heart of hearts, the last thing that they, wants to, that they want to do is then be critical to their children. But it's a learned behavior for them. And they never dealt with it rightly before the Lord. And it's just weird that often in life we grow up and we become the thing that we like the very least about our parents. It's a weird thing. They would never want to be critical. They, they know how much it, it hurt them as their parents were critical. But oftentimes that's why they're critical to their own children. Or sometimes it is that they have their own feelings of failure or inadequacies. They don't know how to process them, don't know how to deal with them. And the easiest pers- person to pick on is a kid who's in the house that can't defend himself. So out of their own insecurities, they lash out toward their children. Or it might just be that that parent is just a plain jerk. And outside the house... He can control himself and maintain a degree of exposure, but when he gets behind the closed doors of the home, there's no restraint. And at the core, he is a jerk. He pulls it off in society, but inside the home, he's unrestrained in his mouth and his criticism. And the command for that person is do not exasperate your children, do not provoke them to anger. And parents, many of us have said things to our children that we would like to take back. Well, guess what? Take them back. Man, if that's you, repent. Repent before the Lord and repent before your children. It's a wonderful thing to do. My wife and I find ourselves doing it frequently with our son who's just six years old. I say something to him, I go, oh, I can't believe I said that. That's not a lot. I don't want to say that to the boy. Get down on my knees and say, son, forgive me. And pray in front of him, Lord, forgive me for what I said to my son. I didn't mean that. You know, it's been said you can't take back words. I don't think that's entirely true. I think the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than even those words. And you know what else? If your parents spoke to you that way, I am, I am more sorry than I could ever say. But don't pass that on to your kids. You break that curse. Don't perpetuate that curse. Break that curse in the name of Jesus. Don't pass that on to your kids. When it's hard to know how to speak to your kids and you're exasperated yourself, just remember how the Lord speaks to you. Just remember, just bring to mind how the Lord deals with you in your greatest moments of failure, the kind words that he has, the way that he lifts you up and speaks words of encouragement, the way that he causes his face to shine upon you and to give you peace and rest for your souls. Think on the Lord when you parent your children. Well, along the same lines, a second way that I thought of that we often exasperate or provoke our kids to anger is with harsh words, grouchiness and irritability. Harsh words, grouchiness and irritability. Lord knows how many children have lost heart because their parents had a hard day. And we all understand that. And you know what? I I have hard days like the rest of you. Sometimes before I go home, I just need to pray, Lord, I, I want to be a good father to my kids today. Help me not to be a jerk, Lord. Give me strength. Refresh my spirit that I've got something to give to my kids. And it, it's weird that people will often say things to their kids that they would never say to any other human being. But they'll say it to their kids. And that's just so wrong. 
And when they do that, I think as parents, we don't really understand how crushing our words can be. And they just crush the spirit of a child, cause the child to lose heart. And it's a grievous thing. You know, the Old Testament prophesied about the coming of Jesus Christ some 700 years before he came. It, it said that he would be very tender with people who were hurt and weak and bruised. It said in Isaiah 42, 3 concerning Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. So to the weak, to the downtrodden, to the broken, to the bruised, the Lord is tender and he's kind and he's merciful. And our kids are so delicate and our words are very, very powerful. We need to be very careful with the things that we say. And you know, you may not know this perspective. It depends on what you do. But as a pastor, again, I sit with people all the time come to me and say, Pastor, I've got this problem. Will you help me? I say, well, I'll try to direct you toward Jesus. I'll tell you what the Bible says and I'll pray for you. That's about all I'm good for. What's the problem? And I have grown men that weep in my office, heaving shoulders, convulsing chest, weeping in my office. And I'm thinking in my mind, I can't imagine what has gone so wrong. And when they finally get through that weeping, and they're able to tell me what's wrong. They say things like this to me, grown men. They say, my dad never told me he loved me. Or they say things like, my dad said I would never amount to anything. Or my mom called me good for nothing. Said she wished she never had me. You know, the human heart seldom gets over the wounds like that. Those wounds don't heal very easily. It's got to be a powerful work of the Holy Spirit to heal those wounds. And even then, they affect people into the latest hours of life. And so I just want to say to fathers and mothers here, you, you may be well on in years, and your kids may already be 40 or 50 years old. But if you ever spoke to them in that way, I beg you by the mercies of God to repent to them. Tell them you are wrong. And you're sorry. Repent before them on bended knee. And repent before the Lord. I know you wouldn't have said it had you had a second thought. Had you had even an inkling of an idea of how damaging it would have been for decades in their life. You would have restrained your lips. But it's too late now. But you can repent. And that will go such a long way in their hearts for healing. And I want to say to those of you that experience words like that from your parents, I just want to say to you, be healed in the name of Jesus today. I know it hurts. I know it's real. I know it's affected your whole life, but there's healing in the Lord for that. And just don't be defined by their words or actions anymore. Be defined by the words of God to you. Be defined by the actions of Christ. Don't be defined by what they said. Don't let their mistakes rule your life anymore. Be free from that in the name of Jesus today. There is freedom in the Lord. I'm praying for your healing. It was wrong, but the truth of Jesus Christ could set you free.
Third way that I find we often exasperate our children or provoke them to anger along the same lines again is by not expressing love or demonstrating affection or listening and thereby keeping our children at a distance. Our children were never meant to be kept at a distance. They were meant to be kept very near. They were never meant to be held back. They were to be very close to us. And so children need to be told, I love you a lot. They need to hear it and they need to see it. Children need to be praised. Again, Satan will see to it that if you don't praise your children and build them up, some detrimental influence or influencer will come along and praise them and build them in the wrong direction. Children need to be praised and affirmed frequently. They need to be heard and listened to. They must be heard. They must be given a voice in your heart and in the home. They must be listened to. Children need to be hugged and kissed and held a lot. They are designed by God for that. Hold them, kiss them, hug them a lot. And children need to be invited into our world. You brought them into the world, but now invite them into your world. Don't hold them at arm's distance. Expose them to who you are. What it is you do, what your hopes and dreams and thoughts and fears and all the activities are, bring them into your life. They're from you. They're very connected to you. Don't hold them at arm's length. Invite them into your world. And I think James 1.19 applies to parenting where it says, Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We need to listen more to our kids. We need to just hold our words for a minute, and be slow to anger with them. Well, a fourth way that we often exasperate our kids or provoke them to anger is by neglecting being involved in their lives. In the previous point, I said you need to involve them in your life, but you need to see to it that you're involved in their life. I read this this week. It has been estimated that fathers spend an average of 37 seconds a day with their infant sons and one hour a day with their adolescents. These figures are for intact families, though. After divorce, 50% of adolescent children have no contact, 30% have sporadic contact, and 20% see their father once a week or more. Average it all out, and fathers spend approximately 10 minutes a day with their children. It's just not enough. It just isn't enough. And we exasperate, frustrate, and infuriate them when we don't involve ourselves in their lives. What are they interested in? Get interested in it. Are they going through a surfing phase? Get interested in surfing. Are they going through a soccer phase? Get interested in soccer. Are they going through an art phase? Get interested in art. Whatever it might be, get interested and involved with your children's lives. Do not be indifferent. Ask them about it. Why do you like that sport? What's your favorite position? What do you enjoy about that? Ask them these things. The classic example of a failure in this area is David with his son Absalom. David was indifferent to Absalom. Read about it later in the Old Testament. And because of that, Absalom rebelled, and he rebelled in a radical way, and there was civil war in the kingdom, and there was much death and destruction. And it was because David failed as a father to involve himself in Absalom's life. We need to be involved in our children's lives even more than we think, or we exasperate and frustrate them. What they need is you. 
That's what they need is you. You understand that? You. They need you. It's not about what you provide for them. And I've sat with fathers and talked to them about parenthood and have had them say, well, I provide everything that they need. I put food on the table and they have nice clothes and they have toys and they have this and that and a house over their head. And I say, but they don't have you. And they would trade all those things and a hundred times over if they could only have you for a day. The child is designed by God to want and need you, not stuff. And no amount of stuff can ever replace you in their life. Fifth way that we often exasperate our children is by setting unrealistic goals. Unrealistic goals. Raising the bar too high. You know, we have to give our children opportunities to succeed and chances to receive approval. We've got to give them opportunities to succeed. We've got to let them taste success. You know what I mean? Don't worry about failure. They will experience it. That's life. You don't need to design failure into your kid's life. You need to design success into your child's life. You need to give him or her opportunities to succeed and then be affirmed for succeeding. So don't set the bar too high. Be realistic with your goals. And let me say this. Never try to make your child into something or someone you failed to be. That is horribly destructive. We've all seen the dad on the sidelines in Little League football who wished he had made the NFL and had a shot but didn't quite pull it off and now he's going to see to it that his kid makes it and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And his kid might be the best player on that team. He might play a perfect game and he comes off the field and the father says, you'll do better next week. And that child is crushed. And I'll tell you what that child will try to do. That child will try better next week. And eventually he won't be able to do better. And his heart will break because he'll feel as though he never could please his parents. And it's all because the parents were unrealistic and irresponsible in their goal setting for their children. And it causes the kids to lose heart. And to lose interest. We've all seen that. And it's a sad thing. I like what Robert Gromacki says along these lines. He says, A godly parent must warn and teach, but he must make sure that he is communicating the divine will and not his own petty convictions. A sixth way that we often exasperate and provoke our children to anger is by showing favoritism or making unfair comparisons. Man, we fail at this, don't we? Why can't you be more like your brother? Your brother doesn't do that. Why can't you be more like Miles? Look at the way he kicks the ball. Man, that's a horrible thing to do to a child. Unfair comparisons. Listen, as adults, we struggle with comparison. We always look at other people. He's got a better car than me. He's got more hair than me. He, she's better. We do that all the time. We do comparison. And it, it takes us to an ugly place where we ought not to go. It's not a biblical thing to do. We're to get our self-worth from the Lord and His Word to us. Do not begin to teach your child the destructive satanic art of self-comparison. And don't play favorites. Number seven, we often provoke them or exasperate them by not providing for their needs. Now, I talked about what they need is you, not stuff. But there's also the sense in which you, 
as their parents need to provide for them. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Brother, I got news for you. Once you have kids, it just is not about you anymore. It simply is not. And you might say, I work hard all day long. Well, that's right, brother. You work hard for your children and your wife. That's the reality of it. And if you're able to provide for your family and you don't, the Bible says that you are worse than an unbeliever. I'm not talking about people who've been stricken by poverty, by some sort of circumstance, and the family is poor, but the father still has good intentions and is doing his best to provide. I'm talking about the irresponsible parent who does not provide certain basic necessities for his child. The Bible condemns that parent. Basic necessities like privacy. Kids need that. A place to play. A place to study. Clean clothes. Their own possessions. Good meals. Just the basics. When we provide these things for our children, we communicate to them that we respect them and we are concerned for them and we understand their needs. And it makes a child very secure in his parents' love when that is expressed. An eighth way that we often exasperate children or provoke them to anger is with capricious inconsistency. Capricious inconsistency. Uh, capricious, define that. Being capricious is being given to sudden and unaccountable mood changes. You're inconsistent in your parenting. One minute you're saying you can never do this, the next minute you're saying go ahead and do this. Uh, often, you know, uh, we, we change our minds and we create problems for our children when we swing from extreme permissiveness to extreme legalism. Now, there are times and contexts where we bend the rules and we give special treats. But the tone and the tenor of our parenting ought to be consistent and reasoned. There's always a special treat and a special occasion. And it needs to be communicated to them. This is a treat and an occasion. But when we are given to unaccountable mood changes and we swing in our parenting, the young heart and mind cannot process that. It's like the horse whose rider is at the same time kicking them and pulling back on the reins. Kicking and pulling on the reins. Kicking and pulling on the reins. And the horse doesn't know what to do. And what the horse begins to think is, nothing is good enough and I can't please this guy. And for the parent that sends inconsistent messages to his child, the child learns, I can't please my parents. And nothing is good enough. And that causes them to lose heart and to become discouraged and to give up. We need to endeavor to be consistent. That's why don't be flippant, parents. Don't be too quick to speak. Think about, pray about how you're going to lead your children. Be reasoned. Be filled with the Holy Spirit in these things. We all need help in that. We all make mistakes in this area. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And never make a promise to a child you do not intend on keeping. Two days later, you'll forget that you made the promise. They never forget. How many of you can remember a promise that one of your parents made to you and didn't fulfill? How many of you remember it now? Many of us here. Just never forget those things. Never make a promise that you don't un intend on keeping. Number nine, way that we exasperate or provoke our children to anger is by being overly strict and overprotective. I'm not talking about being strict. I'm talking about being overly strict 
and overly protective. It's my opinion that too often parents automatically say no when what we need to do is listen carefully to our children, try to understand their needs and the situation, and then make a reasonable decision with the help of the Holy Spirit. Too often it is just a no. Well, why? No! Okay, but you know, I said no. Okay. Why no? I don't know, just no. I've done that. And I see the look on my son's face, six years old, just bewildered. At six, already saying, Dad, you don't understand the situation. You don't know what just happened in the other room. You don't know what the need is. No! Man, that's horrible. God forgive me for those times. It's a horrible thing to do to our kids. Here's what happens. When we're overprotective and we never allow our kids any liberty, what happens is we don't give them an opportunity to earn trust. And so then they don't value trust. And so they grow up as untrustworthy people in society. We must give our children opportunities to earn trust, to be affirmed. You've earned my trust in this situation. Now, trust requires risk by definition. It wouldn't be called trust if there wasn't a risk involved. It might be risky. But you've got to give your kid a way to earn trust, and then you've got to be able to say, okay, you earned my trust in this situation. Now go and have that liberty. They've got to be able to earn perks and privileges. We need to, as parents, be looking for things to say yes to because there's always going to be enough to say no to. And the child can't just always hear no. It exasperates him. It provokes him to anger. We need to look for things that we could say yes, to, say yes to. Ways that we could bless them, give them privilege and opportunity. Why are some parents overly strict? Well, I think sometimes we're overly strict as parents because we're lazy. I think that's been true in my life. That sometimes it's easier to just say no than to actually get up, assess the situation, think about it, pray about it, and make a reasonable decision with the help of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's just easier to say no. And so I think often a parent who is over-destrict or overprotective is just lazy. And instead of really engaging, they just rule things out. I think that oftentimes it's a sincere attempt to shield a child from a harsh reality. Man, I think about my little Daisy Love, two years old. I would love to just tuck her in my shirt until the rapture of the church and just shield her from everything. I would love to do that. That's not reality. If I attempt to do that, she doesn't develop quickly, correctly. And then once she gets out from under my wings, guess what? She goes nuts. And haven't we all seen that? The person whose parents in high school were just radically over-strict and over-protective and they walked the line in high school, but the moment they went to UCSD (laughs) and moved out of their parents' home, they went nuts because they were never given a chance to earn trust, to be trusted, and to become trustworthy. I think that sometimes parents are overprotective and overstrict just because that's who they are. They're just controlling, manipulative people. And guess what? You need to repent and ask the Lord to change you. 
And I think that sometimes parents are this way because they just don't read the Bible enough. They just don't have an understanding of grace and how God deals with them. I think if we have a better understanding of how the Lord deals with us, we'll be better parents. That's when I'm at my best as a parent. I make a lot of mistakes as a parent, a lot of mistakes. But when I'm at my best is when I'm closest to the Lord. When I'm just walking in the Spirit and just receiving the grace of God, the outflow of that is correct and powerful parenting. And the last thing I'll say about how we exasperate our children and provoke them to anger is kind of the opposite of the previous point. It's this. By having a lack of standards and a failure to discipline. We provoke them to anger. We exasperate them. We cause them to lose heart when we don't set standards and when we don't discipline. Here's what's obvious in the Bible is that God disciplines His children. And if it's good enough for God, it ought to be good enough for you and I. And we see that in the Bible we learn that God's discipline is evidence that we're His children. And God's discipline proves that He loves us. And it's by God's discipline that we grow as His children and that we mature as Christians. This is portrayed wonderfully in Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 5, it says, And have you entirely forgotten the encouraging words spoken to you, his children? He said, My child, don't ignore it when the Lord disciplines you, and don't be discouraged when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes those he accepts as children. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined? If God doesn't discipline you, as he does all his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really one of his children after all. God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful, but afterward there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Or as the New American Standard said, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, there's so much that is accomplished in discipline. And so our Heavenly Father being the perfect Father and being all wise disciplines you and I. And it demonstrates His love and His care, and it reveals His character, and it yields tremendous fruit in our lives, the peaceful fruit of righteousness or right living. It has a good effect in our lives. Now, when we think about our own children, we've got to remember that they have been given a conscience by God. That is that innate sense of right and wrong. Every person has been given it by God. It's perverted by the fall, but we all have it from God. And what children need are parameters by which they can begin to exercise that conscience, move in that conscience, discover the fullness of it, and in which they can develop healthy, godly self-esteem. If they don't have those parameters, then conscience goes out the window. They need to be able to exercise it and bounce off the sides a bit. And that happens when we set standards in the life of our kids. A guy named Dr. Stanley Coopersmith at the University of California, Davis, UC Davis, demonstrated this uh, when he conducted a study some years ago. After evaluating more than 1,700 pre-adolescent boys over several years, he found the following things, among other things. But look at this. Parents of high-esteemed children 
were more strict in their approach to discipline. These homes demanded accountability, responsibility, and self-control. Listen to that. The kids out of 1,700 that were studied that had the highest self-esteem had strict homes where accountability and responsibility and self-control were demanded of them. Conversely, parents of low self-esteem children created insecurity by their permissiveness. These children felt the rules were enforced because nobody cared enough to get involved. That's really, according to the Bible, the heart of the matter. It is an expression of God's love that He disciplines us. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. It is an expression of love, biblical love, when we rightly discipline our children. And a lack of standards and discipline causes them to lose heart. They perceive nobody cares enough to give me parameters. Nobody cares enough to look out for me. And we are doing our children a huge disservice when we don't discipline them. Proverbs speaks about this. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says, If you refuse to discipline your children, it proves you don't love them. If you love your children, you will be prompt to discipline them. That's biblical love. You know, the world, so much of the world, and there's whole schools designed around this wacky concept, so much of the world is, oh, you just, you know, you just let them be who they're going to be. You just stand back and just trip out and just let them, you know, go and just develop and just do it. Oh, you don't like that? You don't have to do it. You don't like that rule? You don't have to do it. Just develop. Guess what? They're sinners by nature. Left to themselves, they will always go towards sin, the Bible says. They need direction, instruction, and discipline. The world might call that love, but the Bible says that is hating your child and contributing to his destruction. We prove our love when we discipline our children. Proverbs 19.18 Discipline your children while there is hope. If you don't, you will ruin their lives, the Word of God says. While their hope means when they are young enough. Don't when your child turns 17 and they're a nutbag say, well, I'm going to start some discipline now. It's too late, bro. If they're 17, it is too late, brother. You better just pray for the rapture of the church. <laughs> Discipline your children while there is hope. If you don't, you'll ruin their lives. Proverbs 22:15 says this, listen. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now the Bible advocates spanking your children. I want to be very clear about that. The Bible says that we ought to spank our children. The Bible says that in the heart of the child, foolishness is bound up. But what drives it from him is the rod of discipline. Spanking the child. Not reasoning. You reason with a four-year-old. Okay, you understand. Listen, in Leviticus it says that if we... And you just... That doesn't work. God's prescription for the foolish heart of a child is to spank that child. The rod of discipline. Now, I know this is not popular in culture today. I know there are even those who would seek to make it against the law to spank your child. I'm not talking about beating your children. We're not talking about that. God would never advocate that. Advocate that. God have mercy on the parents to do that. I'm talking about spanking your children. The Bible supports it. The Bible says do it. In fact, look at this. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14 says... Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with a rod, he will not die. 
You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. The New Living Translation is a little nicer. That's a New American Standard, my preferred translation. But the New Living Translation says, don't fail to correct your children. They're not going to die if you spank them. Physical discipline may well save them from death and hell. That is the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. Forget about what the world says. When a child needs a spanking, they need a spanking. Don't do it in anger. Don't do it in anger. I know you get angry. Stop, wait, send them to their room. Go and just cool down, bro. Pray, have a Diet Coke, chill out. <laughs> By the way, it's, it's great while they're waiting in the room, you know what I mean, for the spanking. I learned more waiting for my dad to come spank me than I ever did him telling me anything. I used to put on layers of underwear. He's out in the living room cooling down. I'm putting on underwear and sweatpants and jeans and ski pants and riding pants and leathers and chaps. God is my witness. I used to put books down my pants. Oh man, I thought about it while I was waiting. I learned a lot of lessons. Send the child to their room. Go and cool down. Come back and explain to them what they did wrong. Why you're disciplining them. And after you spank them, hug them, kiss them, hold them, pray with them. Always do that in our home. We do many things wrong as parents. This is one area that we seek to do right. After we spank our child, we always hold them, kiss them, pray with them. You, you see, what that does in the, in the little tiny mind of a child now, it associates discipline with love. It associates discipline with love. My parents don't discipline me because they hate me and they're not beating me and they're not being mean to me. They love me. And that chases a foolishness out of the, child of, out of the heart of the child, the Bible says. Never do it in anger. Never injure your child. God have mercy on you. Never abuse your child. And always hold them afterwards. Kiss them and pray with them. Make sure they understand. You see, Proverbs 29, the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Isn't that true? Correct your son and he will give you comfort and also delight your soul. Correct your children, they will give you comfort and they will delight you. These are biblical precepts. These are how relational rightness is experienced among parents and children. Discipline and the biblical reasoned, self-controlled exercise thereof is the key to relational fullness in the home with parents and children. Now, you've you got to have a game plan. Those, those are a lot of don'ts, ways that we would exasperate or cause them to lose heart. But notice what Ephesians 6.4 said. It said, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And there's just three ways there that we need to be mindful of. Here's a little game plan. Three things that always need to be on the forefront of your mind with your children. Tenderness, discipline, and instruction. When it says bring them up there, the idea is nourish and feed. It speaks of tenderness. It speaks of cherishing and nourishing and speaking with your children with gentleness and friendliness. 
So have as your game plan tenderness towards your children. And then have discipline, physical and otherwise. We already spoke about that. It's got to happen. There must be discipline in the home. That is the way God established it. If you refuse to discipline your children, do not expect God's blessing on your home. You've neglected his precepts. Discipline has to be a part of the parental game plan. And then lastly, their instruction. The idea here is verbal instruction and verbal warning. Literally, that word means to place before the mind. We as parents are supposed to place before the mind of the children the precepts of God, the ideals of God, the truths of the Bible. We're to place these right things before the mind of the children. And you know those minds are like little sponges? You get the Word of God out there, they're going to soak it up. You may not see it, but they're soaking it up, brother. We're to instruct them. It's got to be part of your game plan, is getting before their little minds the precepts of God. And it's got to begin when the child is young. It's got to begin when the child is young. The Jesuits used to say this, that if they could have the commanding influence in the life of a child until that child was seven years old, the child was theirs. By then the child's character was formed, his convictions were embedded, and his course was set. No amount of contrary teaching would greatly alter the basic bent of that child. I don't know if that's true, but they believed it that by seven years old, man, if you are instructing, disciplining, and if you are tender with that child, you got them. There's going to be some tough phases, no doubt, man. There's going to be some, you know, some trip out times, but generally speaking, it's been said concerning the Bible that the parent must seek to lay a firm foundation of the Bible in the first seven years and then build on it for the next ten. And when we're setting the things of God before our child, we've got to be mindful of their mind. One of the areas that we've got to reach with standards and discipline is the mind of the child because the secular world aims at the mind of our children. The secular world aims to indoctrinate them with worldly principles, worldly ideals, worldly concepts of success, and then wants to equip them to be successful according to the standards of the world. And so often, those things are contrary to the standards in the person of Jesus Christ. And so because the world is going to through many means, and man, they've got an arsenal. Because the world is going through through so many means, seek to indoctrinate our children, we must lay in them the foundation of the Word of God, the truth of Christianity, and the validity of the Bible. We must lay that foundation in them in the early years. Because for all of their impressionable years, the, the secular school system is going to attack Christianity and is going to come against the Bible. And even beyond their impressionable years. When I got to UCSB, I wasn't walking as a Christian. I was a Christian. I wasn't walking as one. I had been born again, but I wasn't living like I was born again. And I got to UCSB. I had grown up in a Christian home, and I just was shocked to find out how anti-Christ every single class was. It didn't matter what the class was. You could be studying the anatomy of of a toad's left paw. And they would talk about how Jesus Christ is not real and how you can't believe the Bible. It was insane to me. I look around and go, do you guys hear the same thing I'm hearing? We're talking about dissecting a frog's leg and they're, t- they're, they're attacking the person of Jesus Christ and the validity of the Bible. I couldn't believe it. But listen, my parents had laid in me at a young age biblical truth and had convinced me at a young age that the Bible was truth. 
And I would sit in a class at UCSB and here's a guy with 900 PhDs and he would tell me, you can't trust the Bible. And I would say, oh yes, I can. And he'd say, why? And I'd say, I don't know. (laughs) But listen to what happened. I simply, because it had been instilled in me at the youngest ages, I believed the Word of God was truth. But I wasn't naive anymore. I was being intellectually challenged and so I intellectually took on the challenge and I went home and I pulled off the shelf my old New American Standard Bible that my mom had given me when I was a little kid. It was covered in dust. I pulled it down off that shelf and I began to pour through it and I found the answers to contradict the lies that they were telling me out at UCSB. And I went back onto that campus and stood firm with the Word of God. And that for me was a tremendous education. I learned the Bible. I learned to defend the Bible. And I got on fire for Jesus Christ. All of that happened because my parents had instilled in me at a very young age that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible is truth. Now I walked away, man. I sold drugs. I got arrested for selling drugs. I overdosed on drugs. I was wrong in every single way. I walked way away. But when the rubber met the road and someone said to me, the Bible isn't true, and they challenged a worldview that had been instilled in me as a child, I said, brother, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. It'll take me a few months, but I will. And they are wrong. The Bible is true. And we need to teach that to our children at the youngest age. We need to firm up their minds in the truths of Christianity. We also need to address their heart in our discipline and in our standards. John Phillips in his commentary on Proverbs says this, The citadel of the emotions has to be stormed and taken for Christ. For self is firmly enthroned from the very beginning. Every child also comes equipped with the capacity to love, hate, laugh, cry, desire, fear, and hope. He is a bundle of emotional contradictions thanks to the fall. Parents then must instill in their children a fear and horror of sin, seek to engage their affections to Christ, and meet their emotional needs. Jesus is the friend of little children. And in our efforts to reach their hearts, we have a willing and wondrous ally in the Holy Spirit. Parents, you've got to have a game plan which consists of tenderness, discipline, and instruction. And you've got to address the mind of the child and the heart of the child and the will of the child. John Phillips says concerning the will, parents must command respect, fear, and obedience early. For the parents stand in the place of God in the lives of young children. That stubborn childish will must learn to obey without argument or the display of temper. Children who do not learn to respect parental authority will learn to defy or challenge all authority. And lastly, and this really is the last thing I'll say, we need to address the conscience of the child. As I said earlier, every child comes equipped with a gift from God, the innate sense of right or wrong. It is a conscience. It's perverted because of the fall, but there still remains the innate sense of right or wrong. The thing about the conscience is it can be conditioned, it can be sensitized, or it can be seared. And it is absolutely vital that we as parents glue the Word of God to the conscience of a child at the youngest ages. In fact, we're commanded to do that. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says... And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. It is a God-given responsibility of the parents 
to instill in the conscience of the child the Word of God. It is the parent's job, not the church's job. Listen to me. Do not expect the church to do this for you. We have them for two hours on a Sunday, sometimes a little more. That's it. Two hours on a Sunday. The job of the church is to come alongside the parent and help you. To bolster, to support the biblical ideals that you are already speaking to your child. It is your job to raise them in the Lord, not ours. You leave it to us, that's against God's design. There will be failure. It's not the job of the church. It is not the job of a Christian school or any other organization. It is the job of the parent. And why it is absolutely necessary that we condition the conscience with the Word of God is because then the Holy Spirit later on in life has something to work with when he comes to convict that child of sin. And conviction is what precedes repentance. And repentance is what precedes salvation. And so when we instill in their conscience the Word of God and we bolster that innate sense of right or wrong, later on in life, the Holy Spirit at the opportune moment will come and along with that convict them of sin, bring them to repentance, and bring them to salvation and into the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. And I have found in my own evangelistic efforts, even street evangelism, be it the streets of Isla Vista or Carpinteria or in Germany, wherever I have done it, that when people pray the prayer to receive the Lord on the street, as I do follow-up work and work with them, they all tell me that as a child, their parents spoke of the Bible or they went to Sunday school. Somehow they learned these precepts. And now 20, 30 years later, the Holy Spirit came and used those things to convict them of sin and bring them into salvation. What a wonderful responsibility for the parents. Listen, if we don't condition their conscience with the Word of God, then the world will condition their conscience with what they see on TV. And what kids see on TV can radically sear and desensitize their conscience. Here's a little fact for you. Teenagers, defined as between the age of 12 and 17, will see a yearly average of 14,000 acts of sexual intercourse between couples or innuendos thereof on primetime TV. 14,000 in a year. 94% of all sexual acts and or innuendos on TV are between people who are not married. Now, if we're not conditioning their consciences with the Word of God, then their consciences are being conditioned with those things. They are being desensitized to morality. They are being seared. And here's what happens now. When someone comes along and propositions your daughter sexually, you haven't instilled in her the truth of the Word of God and the morality thereof. She is seen on TV, promiscuity modeled, and premarital sex modeled and accepted. She has no context onto which she can fall to try to stand firm against the advances of that man, and she now gives herself to him at a premature time. When someone is propositioned by a homosexual, in today's culture, what's pushed on TV is that homosexuality is absolutely acceptable and normal and reasonable. And that is contrary to the Word of God. And so we are going to see a generation where homosexuality is rampant as it was in the days of Noah. It's happened before in history. History is repeating itself. Television will condition your children to these things and it will be their moral ruin if we don't condition them according to the Word of God. Parents, 
I've laid a heavy trip on you today, I understand. We all fail in these things. None of us is a perfect parent. That's why we have the Heavenly Father. He's perfect. And His grace is more than sufficient to make up where we fail. But I believe in these last days we really ought to endeavor with every fiber of our beings and by the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk according to these biblical principles in raising our kids. I just want to encourage you, parents, if you've erred in any of these ways, don't be condemned today, but do repent today. Change your actions. Change your direction. There's some way that you need to repent to your children. That's a wonderful, glorious, humble thing to do. And I want to say to all of us who have had the wrong words and actions done to us by parents prior, that there's healing in the Lord. There really is healing in the Lord today. If you need help with that, come forward to the prayer team. They want to lay hands on you. I know the hurt is real. I know the wounds are deep. But whom have we in heaven other than the Lord? Come to the Lord today and let him set right what was wrong. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for these great truths.